Chapter 2, Part 1 of Apologia Pro Vita Sua by John Henry Cardinal Newman. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Bill McGillivray. Chapter 2, History of My Religious Opinions from 1833 to 1839. In spite of the foregoing pages, I have no romantic story to tell, but I have written them because it is my duty to tell things as they took place. I have not exaggerated the feelings with which I returned to England, and I have no desire to dress up the events which followed, so as to make them in keeping with the narratives which has gone before. I soon relapsed into everyday life, which I had hitherto led, and all things the same, except that a new object was given me. I had employed myself in my own room in reading and writing, and in the care of the church before I left England, and I returned to the same occupation when I was back again. And yet perhaps those most vehement feelings which carried me on were necessary for the beginning of the movement, and afterwards, when it was once begun, the special need of me was over. When I got home from abroad, I found that already a movement had commenced in opposition to the specific danger which at that time was threatening the religion of the nation and its church. Several zealous and able men had united their council and were in correspondence with each other. The principal of these were Mr. Keebley, Harrell Friday, who had reached home long before me, Mr. William Palmer of Dublin, and Worcester College, not Mr. William Palmer of Magdalen, who is now a Catholic, Mr. Arthur Percival, and Mr. Hugh Rose. To mention Mr. Hugh Rowe's name is to kindle in the minds of those who knew him a host of pleasant and affectionate remembrances. He was the man above all fitted by his cast of mind and literary powers to make a stand, if a stand could be made, against the calamity of the times. He was gifted with a high and large mind and a true sensibility of what was great and beautiful. He wrote with warmth and energy he had a cool head and cautious judgment. He spent his strength and shortened his life. Pro Ecclesiastes die, as he understood that southern idea. Some years earlier, he had been the first to give warning, I think from the university pulpit at Cambridge, of the perils to England, which lay in the biblical and theological speculations of Germany. The reform agitation followed, and the Whig government came into power, and he anticipated in their distribution of church patronage the authoritative introduction of liberal opinions into the country. He feared that by the Whig party a door would be opened in England to the most grievous of heresies, which never could be closed again. In order, under such grave circumstances, to unite churchmen together and to make a front against the coming danger, he had in 1832 commenced the British magazine, and in the same year he came to Oxford in the summer term in order to beat up for writers for his publication. On that occasion I became known to him through Mr. Palmer. His reputation and position came in aid of his obvious fitness, in point of character and intellect, to become the center of an ecclesiastical movement if such a movement were to depend on the action of a party. His delicate health, his premature death, would have frustrated the expectation 
even though the new school of opinion had been more exactly thrown into the shape of a party than in fact was the case but he zealously backed up the first efforts of those who were principals in it and when he went abroad to die in eighteen thirty eight he allowed me the solace of expressing my feelings of attachment and gratitude to him by addressing him in the dedication of a volume of my sermons as the man who when hearts were failing bade us stir up the gifts that was in us and betake ourselves to our true mother but there were other reasons beside mr rose's state of health which hindered those who so much admired him from availing themselves of his close cooperation in the coming fight united as both he and they were in the general scope of the movement they were in discordance with each other from the first in their estimate of the means to be adopted for attaining it mr rose had a position in the church a name and serious responsibilities he had direct ecclesiastical superiors he had intimate relations with his own university and a large clerical connection through the country Frere and I were nobodies, with no characters to lose and no antecedents to fetter us. Rose could not go ahead across country, as Frere had no scruples in doing. Frere was a bold rider, as on horseback, so also in his speculations. After a long conversation with him on the logical bearing of his principles, Mr. Rose said of him with quiet humor, that he did not seem to be afraid of inferences. It was simply the truth. Froude had that strong hold on first principles, and that keen perception of their value, that he was comparatively indifferent to the revolutionary action which would attend on their application to a given state of things, whereas in the thoughts of Rose, as a practical man, existing facts had the precedence of every other idea and the chief test of the soundness of the line of policy lay in the consideration whether it would work this was one of the first questions which as it seemed to me on every occasion occurred to his mind with Frede, erastianism that is the union so he viewed it of church and state was the parent or if not the parent the serviceable and sufficient tool of liberalism Till that union was snapped, Christian doctrine never could be safe, and while he well knew how high and unselfish was the temper of Mr. Rose, yet he used to apply to him an epithet reproachful in his own mouth. Rose was a conservative. By bad luck I brought out this word to Mr. Rose in a letter of my own, which I wrote to him in criticism of something he had inserted in his magazine. I got a vehement rebuke for my pains, for though Rose pursued a conservative line, he had as high a disdain as Froude could have of worldly ambitions and an extreme sensitiveness of such an imputation. But there was another reason still, and a more elementary one, which served Mr. Rose from the Oxford movement. Living movements do not come of committees, nor are great ideas worked out through the post even though it had been the penny post. This principle deeply penetrated both Froude and myself from the first, and recommended to us the course which things soon took spontaneously, and without set purpose of our own. Universities are the natural centers of intellectual movements. How could men act together, 
whatever was their zeal, unless they were united in a sort of individuality. Now first we had no unity of place. Mr. Rose was at Suffolk, Mr. Percival in Surrey, Mr. Keebley in Gloucestershire, Fridell Froude had to go for his health to Barbados. Mr. Palmer was indeed in Oxford. This was an important advantage, and took well in the first months of the movement, but another condition besides that of place was required. A far more essential unity was that of antecedents, a common history, common memories, an intercourse of mind with mind in the past, and a progress and increase in the intercourse in the present. Mr. Percival, to be sure, was a pupil of Mr. Keebley's, but Keebley, Rose, and Palmer represented distinct parties, or at least tempers, in the establishment. Mr. Palmer had many conditions of authority and influence. He was the only really learned man among us. He understood theology as a science. He was practiced in the scholastic mode of controversial writings, and I believe was as well acquainted as he was dissatisfied with the Catholic schools. He was as decided in his religious views as he was cautious and even subtle in their expression, and gentle in their enforcement. But he was deficient in depth, and besides coming from a distance, he never had really grown into an Oxford man, nor was he generally received as such, nor had he any insight into the force of personal influence and congeniality of thought in carrying out a religious theory, a condition which Froude and I considered essential to any true success in the stand which had to be made against liberalism. Mr. Palmer had a certain connection, as it may be called, in the establishment consisting of high church dignitaries, archdeacons, London rectors, and the like, who belonged to what was commonly called the high and dry school. They were far more opposed than even he was to the irresponsible action of individuals. Of course, their beau ideal in ecclesiastical action was a board of safe, sound, sensible men. Mr. Palmer was their organ and representative, and he wished for a committee, an association with rules and meetings, to protect the interest of the church in its existing peril. He was in some measure supported by Mr. Percival. I, on the other hand, had out of my own head begun the tracts, and these as representing the antagonistic principles of personality were looked upon by Mr. Palmer's friends with considerable alarm. The great point at the time with the good men in London, some of them men of the highest principle, and far from influenced by what we used to call Erastianism, was to put down the tracts. I, as their editor and mainly their author, was of course willing to give way. Keebley and Froude advocated their continuance strongly, and were angry with me for consenting to stop them. Mr. Palmer shared the anxiety of his own friends, and, kind as were his thoughts of us, he still not unnaturally felt, for reasons of his own, some fidget and nervousness at the course which his Oriole friends were taking. Froude, for whom he had a real liking, took a high tone in his project of measures for dealing with bishops and clergy, which must have shocked and scandalized him considerably. As for me, there was matter enough in the early tracts to give him equal disgust, 
and doubtless I much tasked his generosity when he had to defend me, whether against the London dignitaries or the country clergy. Oriel, from the time of Dr. Copleston to Dr. Hamden, had had a name far and wide for liberality of thought. It had received a formal recognition from the Edinburgh Review, if my memory serves me truly, as a school of speculative philosophy in England, and on one occasion in 1833, when I presented myself with some of the first papers of the movement to a country clergyman in Northamptonshire, he paused a while and then, eyeing me with significance, asked whether Waitley was at the bottom of them. Mr. Percival wrote to me in support of the judgment of Mr. Palmer and the dignitaries. I replied in a letter, which he afterwards published. As to the tracts, I said to him, I quote my own words from his pamphlet. Everyone has his own taste. You object to some things, another to others. If we alter to please everyone, the effect would be spoiled. They were not intended as symbols, e cathedra, but as expressions of individual minds and individuals feeling strongly, while on the other hand, they are incidentally faulty in mode or language, are still particularly effective. No great work was done by a system, whereas systems rise out of individual exertions. Luther was an individual. The very fault of an individual excited tension. He loses, but his cause, if good and he powerful-minded, gains. This is the way of things. We promote truth by a self-sacrifice. The visit which I made to the Northamptonshire rector was only one of a series of similar expedients, which I adopted during the year 1833. I called upon clergy in various parts of the country, whether I was acquainted with them or not, and I attended at the house of friends where several of them were from time to time assembled. I do not think that much came of such attempts, nor were they quite in my way. Also I wrote various letters to clergymen, which fared not much better, except that they advertised the fact that a rally in favor of the church was commencing. I did not care whether my visits were made to high church or low church. I wished to make a strong pull in union with all who were opposed to the principles of liberalism, whoever they might be. Giving my name to the editor, I commenced a series of letters in the record newspaper. They ran to a considerable length, and were borne by him with great courtesy and patience. The heading given to them was Church Reform. The first was on the revival of church discipline, the second on its scripture proof, the third on the application of the doctrine, the fourth was an answer to objections, the fifth was on the benefits of discipline, and then the series was abruptly brought to a termination. I had said what I really felt, and what was also in keeping with the strong teachings of the tracts, but I suppose the editor discovered in me some divergence from his own line of thought, for at length he sent a very civil letter, apologizing for the non-appearance of my sixth communication, on the ground that it contained an attack upon temperance societies, about which he did not wish a controversy in his columns. He added, however, his serious regrets at the theological views of the tracts. I had subscribed a small sum in 1828 
towards the first start of the record. Acts of the officious character which I have been describing were uncongenial to my natural temper, to the genius of the movement, and to the historical motive its success. They were the fruit of that exuberant and joyous energy with which I had returned from abroad, and which I never had before or since. I had the exaltation of health restored, and home regained. While I was at Palermo, and thought of the breadth of the Mediterranean, and the wearisome journey across France, I could not imagine how I was ever to get to England. But now I was amid familiar scenes and faces once more, and my health and strength came back to me with such a rebound that some friends at Oxford, on seeing me, did not well know that it was I, and hesitated before they spoke to me, and I had the consciousness that I was employed in that work which I had been dreaming about, and which I felt to be so momentous and inspiring. I had a supreme confidence in our cause. We were upholding that primitive Christianity, which was delivered for all time by the early teachers of the Church, and which was registered and attested in the Anglican formularies and by the Anglican divines. That ancient religion had well nigh faded away out of the land through the political changes of the last 150 years, and it must be restored. It would be in fact a second reformation, a better reformation, for it would be a return not to the 16th century, but to the 17th. No time was to be lost, for the Whigs had come to do their worst, and the rescue might come too late. Bishoprics were already in course of suppression. Church property was in course of confiscation. Seas would soon be receiving unsuitable occupants. We knew enough to begin preaching upon, and there was no one else to preach. I felt as on board a vessel, which first gets under way, and then the deck is cleared out, and luggage and livestock stowed away into their proper receptacles. Now was it only that I had confidence in our cause, both in itself and in its polemical force, but also, on the other hand, I despised every rival system of doctrine and its arguments too. As to the high church and the low church, I thought that the one had not much more of a logical basis than the other while I had a thorough contempt for the controversial position of the latter. I had a real respect for the character of many of the advocates of each party, but that did not give cogency to their arguments, and I thought, on the contrary, that the apostolical form of doctrine was essential and imperative, and its ground of evidence impregnable. Owing to this supreme confidence, it came to pass at that time that there was a double aspect in my bearing towards others, which it is necessary for me to enlarge upon. My behavior had a mixture in it both of fierceness and of sport, and on this account, I dare say, it gave offense to many, nor am I here defending it. I wish men to agree with me, and I walk with them step by step as far as they would go. This I did sincerely, but if they would stop, I did not much care about it, but walked on, with some satisfaction that I had brought them so far. I liked to make them preach the truth without knowing it, and encourage them to do so. It was a satisfaction to me 
that the record had allowed me to say so much in its columns without remonstrance. I was amused to hear of one of the bishops who, on reading the early tract on the apostolical succession, could not make up his mind whether he held the doctrine or not. I was not distressed at the wonder or anger of dull and self-conceited men at propositions which they did not understand. When a correspondent in good faith wrote to a newspaper to say that the sacrifice of the Holy Eucharist, spoken of in the tract, was false print for sacrament, I thought the mistake too pleasant to be corrected before I was asked about it. I was not unwilling to draw an opponent on step by step, by virtue of his own opinions, to the brink of some intellectual absurdity, and to leave him to get back as he could. I was not unwilling to play with a man, who asked me impertinent questions. I think I had in my mouth the words of the wise man, Answer a fool according to his folly, especially if he was prying or spiteful. I was reckless of the gossip which was circulated about me, and, when I might easily have set it right, did not deign to do so. Also, I used irony in conversation when matter-of-fact men would not see what I meant. This kind of behavior was a sort of habit with me. If I have ever trifled with my subject, it was a more serious fault. I never used arguments which I saw clearly to be unsound, the nearest approach which I remember to such conduct, but which I consider was clear of it, nevertheless, was in the case of Tract 15. The matter of this tract was furnished to me by a friend, to whom I had applied for assistance, but who did not wish to be mixed up with the publication. He gave it to me, that I might throw it into shape, and I took his arguments as they stood. In the chief portion of the tract, I fully agreed, for instance, as to what it says about the Council of Trent. But there were arguments, or some argument, in which I did not follow. I do not recollect what it was. Froude, I think, was disgusted with the whole tract, and accused me of economy in publishing it. It is principally through Mr. Froude's remains that this word has got into our language. I think I defend myself with arguments such as these that, as every one knew, the tracts were written by various persons who agreed together in their doctrine, but not always in the arguments by which it was to be proved, that we must be tolerant of differences of opinion among ourselves, that the author of the tract had a right to his own opinion, that the argument in question was ordinarily received, that I did not give my own name or authority, nor was asked for my personal belief, but only acted instrumentally as one might translate a friend's book into a foreign language. I account these to be good arguments. Nevertheless, I feel also that such practices admit of easy abuse and are consequently dangerous. But then again, I feel also this, that if all such mistakes were to be severely visited, not many men in public life would be left with a character for honor and honesty. This absolute confidence in my cause, which led me to the negligence or wantonness which I have been instancing, also laid me open, not unfairly, to the opposite charge of fierceness in certain steps which I took or words which I published. 
in the lyra apostolica i have said that before learning to love we must learn to hate though i had explained my words by adding hatred of sin in one of my first sermons i said i do not shrink from uttering my firm convictions that it would be a gain to the country were it vastly more superstitious more bigoted more gloomy more fierce in its religion than at present it shows itself to be i added of course that it would be an absurdity to suppose such tempers of mind desirable in themselves the corrector of the press bore these strong epithets till he got to more fierce and then he put in the margin a query in the very first page of the first tract i said of the bishops that black event though it would be for the country yet we could not wish them a more blessed termination of their course than the spoiling of their goods in martindom in consequence of a passage in my work upon the arian history a northern dignitary wrote to accuse me of wishing to re-establish the blood and torture of the inquisition contrasting heretics and heresiarchs i had said the latter should meet with no mercy he assumes the office of the tempter and so far as his error goes must be dealt with by the competent authority as if he were embodied evil to spare him is a false and dangerous pity it is to endanger the souls of thousands and it is uncharitable towards himself i cannot deny that this is a very fierce passage but arius was banished not burned and it is only fair to myself to say that neither at this nor any other time of my life not even when i was fiercest could i have even cut off a puritan's ears and i think the sight of a spanish auto daffy would have been the death of me again when one of my friends of liberal and evangelical opinions wrote to expostulate with me on the course i was taking i said that we would ride over him and his as osniel prevailed over cushion richenthame king of mesopotamia again i would have no dealings with my brother and i put my conduct upon a syllogism i said st paul bids us avoid those who cause divisions you cause divisions therefore i must avoid you i dissuaded a lady from attending a marriage of a sister who had seceded from the anglican church no wonder that blanco white who had known me under such different circumstances now hearing the general course that i was taking was amazed at the change which he recognized in me he speaks bitterly and unfairly of me in his letters contemporaneously with the first years of the movement but in eighteen thirty nine on looking back he uses terms of me which it would be hardly modest in me to quote were it not that what he says of me in praise occurs in the midst of blame he says in this party the anti peel in eighteen twenty nine i found to my great surprise my dear friend mr newman of oriel as he had been one of the annual petitioners to parliament for catholic emancipation his sudden union with the most violent bigots was inexplicable to me that change was the first manifestation of the mental revolution which has suddenly made him one of the leading prosecutors of dr hampton 
and the most active and influential member of that association called the Puseyite Party, from which we have those very strange productions entitled Tracts for the Times. While stating these public facts, my heart feels a pang at the recollection of the affectionate and mutual friendship between that excellent man and myself, a friendship which his principle of orthodoxy could not allow him to continue in regard to one whom he now regards as inevitably doomed to eternal perdition. Such is the venomous character of orthodoxy. What mischief must it create in a bad heart and narrow mind when it can work so effectually for evil in one of the most benevolent of bosoms and one of the ablest of minds in the amiable, the intellectual, the refined John Henry Newman. He adds that I would have nothing to do with him, a circumstance which I do not recollect and very much doubt. End of chapter 2, part 1